This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Capitalism, socialism, communism. We've heard these terms before. Sometimes they are brought up in discourse to push for progressive change. Other times they are weaponized by political parties for their own agendas. But what do these terms actually mean? And how do they apply in today's context? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, who's a lecturer in global political economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Now, Peter, these days... Everything is seen through the lens of party politics, right? And so it's easy for certain words or phrases to be twisted and weaponized. But when we talk about capitalism, what what exactly is it? Well, to make it as simple as possible, capitalism is essentially a system of economic organization based around private ownership of property, including the the means of production, the factories, the machines that produce things, etc., uh, so that's that's the kind of most basic core of it. You also have other components, but, but you know, as we're going to get to with socialism and communism as well, uh, all of these terms are immensely contested. You have people who claim to be proponents of each of these terms who have radically different uh, understandings of what they mean. So I, I'm just trying to keep capitalism down to its uh, its simplest core component. So it's just organizing an economy on the basis of private ownership. I, I actually was just uh, having a conversation recently, and I resolved to stop using the terms capitalism, socialism, and democracy, all of these terms from the 20th century, because right. I think they've gotten so many different uh, meanings to so many different people that they become nearly useless. But regardless, like just for the, the, for the sake of this conversation, <laughs> I, I think if you, if you look at it, uh, try to forget everything you know, and just imagine you're an alien looking at planet Earth and humans and trying to understand how this strange species organizes itself. Capitalism is is basically like a a relatively decentralized system of economic organization. Like if you come up with some product that serves some need and the people who have that need have the money to buy it, then you will probably succeed. Uh, What will end up happening is you'll produce this product People will give you their claims on resources, what we call money. You know, the alien is looking at it as, oh, these weird pieces of paper. Like, oh, I see what that is. That's a claim on social resources. Got it. So then you accumulate these claims, this money, uh, and that is the basis for the, the, you know, capitalist, and I'm wincing as I say the word, <laughs> system. But yeah, it does rely on greed. You know, you could you could think of the other systems as relying on other aspects of human nature, like our, our solidaristic nature, our cooperative uh, nature, whereas capitalism relies more on our competitive nature. And so greed can be one of the, the, the main motivi- motivating drivers in this system. Uh, but you also have examples of other kinds of motivation working within even a capitalist system. But yeah, I think it's safe to say that greed is kind of the the oil, the lubricants, or the fuel, maybe, of the system. But you, you brought up competition, but you also say that essentially it is a system based on greed. But at the same time, some people will say that it's not because, for example, if you go on Amazon, 
right? I saw this uh, example on one of her videos of someone who was pro-capitalism and he brought up the example that if you go on Amazon, uh, you know, and, and you want to buy something. So let's say you want to buy a um, cabinet to keep your items uh, at, at home, something basic, right? Um, essentially, a company has created something to solve your problem, your problem of needing to uh, keep things or arrange things in your bedroom. So technically, is that is that a system based on greed or is that a system that rewards you for helping others? But the, the real core of the of the system is, is its kind of decentralized nature. And here is where, again, the, the term capitalism is far too capacious. It covers way too many things. Because you have some people who are, you know, really hardcore supporters of capitalism, but they think that intense competition is the nature of the system. And as long as you have uh, monopolies or oligopolies, you're no longer in a true capitalist system. You're now in a crony capitalist system or a corrupt capitalist system. There's all these these different ways of, of looking at it. But in, in one sense, if you look at capitalism as opposed to a command economy system where you have the government organizing production and the government owns the means of production. The, the main difference is you kind of are farming out to other people some of the, the, the key tasks that a government running a command economy would have to do. So think of it, if you're in a, a command economy system, you need to produce all sorts of goods for the, for the people. So you set up a factory to make mattresses and you, you put somebody in charge of that to operate it. Whereas in capitalism, if I'm just some random person, I could theoretically start my own mattress company and kind of nominate myself to the position that in a command economy system, I would have to be appointed to by somebody you know high up in the, in the government. The major difference here is it's not you know, a lot of supporters of capitalism will say, well, this is a much more meritocratic system because it's more about the strength of your ideas. Can you convince somebody to loan you money to, to start the enterprise? And to some extent, that's true. And that's where the more decentralized nature of the system comes to the fore. But on the other hand, you, you have the problem of uh, GIGO, one of my favorite acronyms. Uh, it it uh, uh, stands for garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> so some of the, the earliest proponents of what we, the system we have today, like uh, uh, von Hayek, described the capitalist system as a, a massive information processor that can process the only system that can process the, the, the complex amount of information that organizing an economic system for billions of people requires. Uh, but the, and, and to you know, a large extent, that's, that's true. It is a way of understanding what people want and what people need. But they, you always have to think of GIGO, that garbage in, garbage out. The, the information processor is only as good as the information coming in to the information processor. And what is the information that we're talking about when we're talking about a system based on private ownership of property and the means of production? We're talking about money. That's the information. That is the effective way that you can tell the system, so to speak, that you want something or you need something. So the, the system is very much dependent on the initial allocation of money of these claims on social resources. 
So you could just imagine different systems with, or sorry, the same system with different starting allocations of money. So if, if only children had money and adults had no money, the whole system would be reorganized to produce toys and candy, right? Because that's the input coming into the system. Right. If the only people that had money in the system were uh, sadists, like the Marquis de Sade, you would have the system producing an entirely different uh, sort of output. So you, you always have to keep in mind, you know, with the with the people that praise the the wonderful information processing capacities of a free market capitalist system, you always have to keep in mind Gigo. What is the quality of the information coming in? And the system mm-hmm. is very much dependent on the allocation of money. Would you agree, though, that? Um, outside of this idea of crony capitalism, um, inter- if you look at it from the angle of competition, which is um, what a lot of people bring up, right? That capitalism is a competitive system. It's a system where we engineer competition so that people can prosper if they innovate. People can prosper if they work hard. Would you say that has actually propelled society forward? It has been one of the main reasons um, why we have progressed so much, um, whether we look at technology and and all these uh, economically and all these different aspects? Well, I I don't know if I'd go that far, but I would agree to to some uh, extent. I think capitalist systems or systems that we call capitalist have proven themselves to be quite good at producing consumer goods, especially. When you get to uh, heavy industry, uh, uh, major technological advances, what you oftentimes see uh, almost you know, exclusively when we're dealing with really important innovations is the hands of the state aiding the, the, the basic research and development going into these innovations. So actually, I would give the credit mostly to science. And then the system of economic organization can either help or hinder uh, that that basic process. But the, the track record, I think, over the past century or so, uh, and, and even longer, uh, but you, you can only limit it to a, a century if we're going to compare capitalism to socialism or communism. Uh, and in that comparison, I think what emerges pretty clearly is capitalism does really well at producing consumer goods, perhaps too well. Whereas socialism, socialism and communism, whatever you want to call it, the kind of state-directed economic system, uh, is very good, better actually, at producing heavy industry and infrastructure and social services. Uh, and again, that kind of gets down to the, the basic GIGO problem of, of capitalism. When you want for your society to offer, let's say, healthcare and education to everyone, the market just isn't going to do that because the people who have that need and desire don't have enough pieces of paper, chits or money to put that information to, into the system so that the system produces the healthcare and the education, right. et cetera. And, you know, like the, uh, people like Marx and uh, and and you know, socialists going back to the to the 19th century were actually very uh, uh, praising of capitalism. They said this system has been amazing compared to feudalism in fostering technological development and fostering scientific advancement through that kind of decentralized nature of the system, where if you have a good idea, you at least have a shot 
of potentially getting the capital to implement it. And of course, it's not fair if you have a rich uncle or, or dad or whatever, <laughs> you have much a much greater chance of, of your really bad idea getting the money to, to uh, uh, make it a reality compared to someone without that access who has an excellent idea. You actually have a better chance of just having your idea stolen with, yeah. <laughs> by someone with money, you know? And, and how did it reach a point um, where that, you know, that problem, you know, you brought up the whole idea of a rich uncle, rich father, things like that. How has it reached a point where capitalism has to, has skewed towards or has favoured the rich to such an exponential degree that now we are having these sorts of com- conversations on such a, a, a more wide-scale uh, a manner where people, even uh, regular folks or political parties are really talking about how we need to push back against capitalism and all that. How has it reached a point where you know capitalism essentially have just made the rich richer and the poor poorer? Well, I mean, that's kind of been the the the, uh, the core of the capitalist system from the very beginning. Uh, unless you have some other countervailing force to redistribute claims on wealth, uh, claims on social resources, what we call money, uh, if you don't have that, the kind of natural tendency of the system is to concentrate money in fewer and fewer hands. So the, the Thomas Piketty book that a lot of people talk about, but very few have read because it's like a thousand pages, <laughs> the, the, the first one, or not the first one, but the uh, one from like 2011 or so, uh, what is it, Capital in the 21st Century, his basic argument was when you have uh, a rate of return to assets, like rate of return to your investments, your factories, et cetera, that's greater than the rate of growth of the economy overall, then it's just a mathematical certainty that wealth is going to get more and more concentrated. So we've just reached a, a stage, thanks to what's called you know, the neoliberal revolution starting in the 1970s, where governments around the world changed their policies to uh, essentially allow for wealth to get more and more concentrated, and they pulled back on redistributive efforts. Now we're, we're reaping the, the bounty. We're, we're reaping the harvest. We, we are now getting what we've sowed over the past few decades. And of course, that's produced a kind of counter reaction. Right. So now, Peter, over the past few years or so, we've seen growing criticisms, right? As I just mentioned, um, directed towards the wealthy political parties or at least caucuses and factions in political parties um, in democratic nations have started to say things like we need to tax the rich. So, um, you know, good examples will be the likes of Bernie Sanders and um, AOC in the US. They are huge proponents of this. In Malaysia, we have the likes of Party Muda, Party Socialist Malaysia, who have expressed um, similar sentiments as well. Um, Words like socialism have been thrown around. But what exactly does socialism mean? Yeah, so here's another word like capitalism <laughs> that has a gazillion different meanings, and oftentimes they're they're radically opposed. But if you go back to kind of like the the classical or orthodox understanding of socialism, like in its most uh, uh, basic form, it is when the workers or the people in general control the means of production. So in capitalism, it's a system of private ownership of the means of production. Ownership means you can exclude. Uh, you have total control over your factory or your business, uh, whereas in socialism, the idea is that the people would have some sort of democratic say over how the means of production are used or how the economy is organized overall. 
But as you can probably tell, that's a pretty vague uh, description. And there's a million different ways to kind of fill that in. So you, you have like Lenin's idea of you need to have a, a kind of vanguard party that will operate the economy in the interests of the mass of people. But the, the mass of people is not educated. They came back from, uh, you know, they were, they're just emerging from a, a, a feudal uh, form of economic organization. They're not capable of, of exercising democratic control. So the party is going to, to control the economy in the interests of everyone. So you have that as socialism. You also have uh, more like democratic socialist ideas where it would be either the workers in each factory controlling their factory completely, or perhaps you would have the people overall being able to have a democratic say in the economy overall through through a vote or through some sort of jury selection system where random average people would get to, to organize the economic system. So you've got a whole lot of, of diversity, but the, the, the basic idea is that the people, especially the workers, would get to control the, the machines that they use, the factories that they work in to produce things. Well, and what would you say are the upsides and downsides of socialism as you've defined it? Well, uh, I mean, I guess the, the obvious upside is that it, it fits well with part of our human nature, which is to, to cooperate and our what has been called the egalitarian syndrome that we have. Uh, we, we feel pain, psychological pain when we see injustice or unfairness. So socialism is, is kind of swimming with the, the tide of human nature in that respect. It, it, it kind of accentuates that. Uh, it allows a, a better sort of macro control over the economic system. If everyone said, or a majority of people want X, the government that they control can directly attempt to achieve X. Whereas under a, a capitalist system, you have ownership of the, the, the commanding heights of the economy uh, resting in the hands of just people who own these enterprises. Right. So if the majority of people want a sea change, a radical change in how our technology, our production, our productive capacities are used, uh, that's not so easy. You're going to get opposition from the people who currently own all of the factories and the technology, et cetera. Uh, so that would be kind of the upside of socialism. Uh, the downside would be it's it's still relatively untested. And what I mean by that is, you know, the only countries that have adopted what they consider to be, what the governments of these countries consider to be socialism, have been relatively poor and backward countries. And that goes against the original ideas that Marx had. He thought that it would be the advanced countries like Germany uh, of his day turning socialists first. And the reason why that's important is that, you know, remember I told you, he said uh, he was praising capitalism <laughs> compared to feudalism. Like right. it's amazing for, for increasing the productive capacity of humankind, et cetera. So his idea was Germany and all the advanced countries with all of the, the, the top of the line technology and factories, et cetera, they would have their socialist revolution first. And then what would they do to the rest of the world? They would just send experts to different countries and say, hey, guys, we're going to build a factory here. You're going to control it. But we need to give you the know-how, the expertise, the technology, et cetera. And through that mechanism, the whole world would eventually uh, get on the kind of same kind of cutting edge level of productive capacity. So 
the downside, I suppose, is that we don't have the experience of the most advanced countries in the world trying to operate in a different manner where the people or the workers actually get to exert some control and authority over the means of production. But don't we have other countries who are operating um, in a very different way, countries like um, Denmark and New Zealand? We'll be discussing that after the break. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, lecturer in Global Political Economy. We'll be back on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan, and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, who's a lecturer in global political economy in the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And we are discussing capitalism, socialism, communism. What do they all mean? Now, Peter, heading into the 2020 US presidential elections, um, the likes of Donald Trump and his Republican Party um, repeatedly branded um, the likes of Bernie Sanders and his faction of the Democratic Party as communists. Although they were talking more about socialism, is there a difference between um, socialism and communism? Um, break this down, Peter. Yeah, so now we get to the, the third term with a gazillion different meanings that, that conflict. But I, basically, like the, the, the original idea that the Marx had was that uh, history kind of advances in, in stages. So you, you, you have kind of primitive communism. That's uh, before the agricultural revolution. We all live in tribes. Uh, we kind of all help each other out. That's actually kind of withstood the test of time. Like now, modern anthropological research uh, is pretty much saying, yeah, that's 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 indeed how we live. Uh, and then that, of course, affects our, our psychology. But moving on, he then thinks that, OK, then you have the, the uh, emergence of kingdoms. You have the development of the feudal system of production. Uh, then out of that comes the capitalist system of production. And then his hope or his, his theory was that the capitalist system of production would shift to the socialist system of production. This is where the workers have control over the factories and the machines, et cetera. And then eventually what that would evolve into is communism. And in that view, communism is not where you have a totalitarian or even authoritarian government. Huh. That's where the government fades away and just disappears because all of the, the, the workers uh, who are organizing their own means of production and controlling them learn to coordinate between themselves to govern the system overall without needing any sort of massive top-down hierarchical governing structure. Now, that probably doesn't sound at all like what most people think when they think <laughs> of communism. And that's because the, the, the communist parties or the parties calling themselves communists, that is the, the ideology, the way of thinking that they were using. So they were thinking communism is the state that we want to get to. That's what we're trying to develop into. But if you if you go back and look at statements from uh, officials in the USSR, uh, look at what Xi Jinping is saying right now in China today. Look what the, the Cuban government is saying. All of them are saying that they are in the process of building socialism. They're not even at the level of building communism. They're saying they're still constructing socialism. So you have that. I think that's probably the, 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 the simplest kind of core of the idea. And you can probably see why there's so much misunderstanding uh, today, because people just look at governments calling themselves communists and say, oh, that must be what communism is. But why has it been so easy to vilify socialism and conflate it with con communism? Like, 
you see that like the, the best example is the US presidential elections where every time the likes of Bernie Sanders and AOC, they won like healthcare for all, for example, education for all, things like that. Immediately, people like Donald Trump will be like, oh, these are the communists. They are trying to make America commun- a communist country. How, how has it been so easy to, to do that? Well, I mean, they're they're operating off of uh, over a hundred years of anti-communist propaganda that has been very effective around the world at getting people to conflate the word communism with ideas like long lines for bread and uh, <laughs> drab gray Soviet concrete architecture and you know gulags. So that's what they think of when they when they hear communism. Most people have no idea. Of, you know, they, they haven't read Marx. They haven't read many actual communists or socialists. So they don't understand that communism is is basically, you know, I, I don't really see much of a difference between communism and anarchism, except temporally. The, the, the anarchist intellectuals are saying we want to have a system right now where everyone organizes their own, you know, workplaces and communities and we don't have a top down governing structure. Well, that is essentially what Marx thought communism would be. So it seems like anarchists are communists right now and communists are anarchists, you know, in some future state. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, you know, I, I keep going back to the likes of AOC and all, but, you know, a lot of the drama surrounding these terms have been, you know, based in the US, right? And that's where you draw simple examples from. Now, they always clarify that they are not communists, in fact, they are what they call democratic socialists. Now, again, these are the terms that you love so much. <laughs> you know, another term. I keep throwing terms at you, Peter. What's the difference between regular old socialism and democratic socialism? Yeah, so this is another, like, you know, one of the gazillion examples of words being used in totally different ways. But basically, you know, you have to you have to think in so many countries around the world, the terms socialism and communism have been demonized. People widely, you know, the, 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 the broad masses of people don't really understand it according to the understanding of the people who actually, you know, are, are in favor of socialism and communism. So you just have to work with what exists out there. So if you know that the population thinks that socialism means long bread lines and gulags, <laughs> then you have to you have to change your terms. So you say, oh, I'm a, a democratic socialist. And what that means in practice for politicians like AOC and, and Sanders is you still have the it's still capitalism. It's still the private ownership of factories, technology, et cetera. But you just have a more interventionist government that uh, taxes away money from the extremely wealthy and then provides uh, uh, more expansive social services like making edu- educational opportunities available to all, giving everyone health care, uh, providing child care. Basically, they want to see a more uh, a system more like Sweden in the 1970s in the U.S., although that's not even perfectly accurate because Sweden in the 1970s was far more radical in a democratic <laughs> socialist direction than even, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC are right, right. now. So basically it just means like a, a, a softer form of, of capitalism where wealth and income inequalities are much less. And the baseline of, of, of social needs is a bit higher or, or rather meeting the baseline of meeting social needs is a bit higher. Which countries in the world um, practice democratic socialism right now and how have they benefited from it? 
Well, I mean, you could look at kind of the the, the most common uh, example are the Scandinavian countries, um, but they're a little confusing because during the the neoliberal era, a lot of them have kind of been backtracking on their, uh, you know, they 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 kind of blazed the trail of democratic socialism for decades. And since the, the 70s, 80s or so, they've been kind of backtracking a bit. So there is a recent analysis in the FT, I think it was, showing how uh, what percentage of GDP does the wealth of the top, uh, I don't know, I guess just the billionaire class in given countries, what percentage of, of the total country's GDP does it represent? And Sweden, I believe, is number two. They, they got rid of uh, their wealth tax, uh, inheritance tax. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say that there are countries that are perfect embodiments of democratic socialism today. But, you know, leaving those, those qualifiers aside, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Norway, et cetera, those are the, the kind of best living examples. And would you say they have benefited from a system that is at least a little bit more uh, into socialism, democratic socialism, as compared to the US? Because one thing I heard oh, yeah. um, during the primaries, um, you're already agreeing with me. Um, <laughs> one thing I heard during the democratic primaries, I think um, one of the candidates of the Democratic Party um, said that America is not even the number one place in the world to live the American dream anymore. You know, Denmark is. Uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, no, that's very true. Uh, levels of, of upward mobility are higher in the socialist, the, the democratic socialist countries of Scandinavia and also in Western Europe overall than they are in the United States, which is a huge embarrassment for, for people from the United States <laughs> like me, because the whole idea of of the United States was this is the land of opportunity. It's not like those old European countries with their crazy, out-of-date, anachronistic feudal system and their landed wealth and their aristocracies and blah, blah, blah. In the U.S., you actually have the chance to go from nothing to very successful. But empirically, that's just not true anymore. My favorite uh, piece of evidence, right? my, my younger sister actually yeah. just became a Finnish citizen. She's been living there for, for quite a while, and she studies the psychology of happiness. And to me, the, the, the biggest uh, indicator of how social democracy has helped the Scandinavian countries is the fact that in uh, all the research on levels of happiness around the world, the Scandinavian countries are always at the top of the list. And that is, even though the Scandinavian countries are cold as hell and dark <laughs> half the year. So if you can be one of the world's happiest countries in a, in a part of the planet like Finland, where, you know, during the winter, you barely see the sun and you'll die in two minutes if you step outside without, you know, a, an Arctic scientist uh, jacket on. Well, that I think is, is probably the most <laughs> revealing uh, evidence of how democratic socialism can be beneficial. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and have, have there been any evidence to show that, you know, economic growth and innovation um, is slower in these countries, in democratic socialist countries? No, no. In fact, uh, there's also surveys of uh, ease of doing business or what are the best countries for starting a new business? And the Scandinavian countries rank pretty high on, on those uh, lists as well. So that is, is clearly a red herring. It's just not empirically true. All right. Um, before we wrap this up, Peter, final thoughts. Um, which would you say is the best system? You know, we've talked about <laughs> socialism, capitalism, communism, democratic socialism. Which would you say is the best? Which approach should countries strive to have? Or should we all just, you know, 
just not even u- stop using these terms and just mm-hmm. end it. You know, that will certainly make you a happier man if you all stop using these terms. Yeah, I, I think we should just coin some new terms and leave communism, socialism, and capitalism for the 20th century and just bury them there. But I mean, I, I think the experience of the, the last century and the uh, warning signs that we see in this century make a couple of things really, really clear. And one is that we simply cannot afford to continue the same system of economic organization that we are in right now. And there's one reason for that. You know, there's also moral reasons, but just setting them aside, uh, that reason is the ecological crisis that we're in. There is no foreseeable way that a system based on uh, a largely decentralized system, but one that nonetheless ends up being centralized, you know, somebody, economists have pointed out, uh, some have, that, you know, you, you still have central planning in today's capitalism. It's just that instead of uh, happening in a uh, government room, it's happening in the boardrooms of the major investment banks. So you, you still do have central planning. It's somewhat more decentralized. But the main problem is that All of the the power holders, the people who control either capital assets that they can uh, invest, the the banks, or and including the people who own factories, companies, etc., all of their incentives are simply to make more money. Uh, It goes against their incentives to lose money, even if it's for a, a greater social cause. So put yourself in the in the shoes of a CEO of a multinational uh, fossil fuel company. You might be the you know the most green person in the world. You might be really concerned about the the future of the planet, etc. But what can you do? You have no option. If you if you say if you're Exxon CEO and you say okay uh, tomorrow I am going to divest Exxon of all of its uh, fossil fuel reserves and use all of our excess capital to retool and become a solar panel uh, company, you would be kicked out the next day. (laughs) All of your investors would be terribly worried about the result of that. That's an extremely risky proposition. And so you wouldn't be able to, to stay in your position as CEO. That's the main problem of whatever you want to call our system today. And I, I borrow something from actually capitalist ideologues. They call it capitalism because they view it as a perversion of their ideal form of competitive capitalism. But that's that's really the key thing. We can't. It's just not sustainable by definition. It, it cannot continue without destroying the life support capacity of the planet. Peter, thanks so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure, my pleasure. I've been speaking with Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, lecturer in Global Political Economy at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you'd like to download the episode or any previous episodes of the show, you can check us out on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. This has been Today I Learned with me, Dashran Johan, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.